0: And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line I've got Matt Taibbi, and he is, of course, a uh, author of great many books. Insane Clown President, The Great Derangement, I Can't Breathe, A Killing on Bay Street about Eric Garner, uh, Smells Like Dead Elephants, Dispatches from a Rotting Empire. I like the title anyway griftopia and hate inc which is absolutely excellent i know you guys will like it and uh he writes at substack we've got a couple of uh tk news is what it's called there on substack uh a couple of great articles uh of interest today the great american military rebrand and the new kremlinology reading the new york times welcome back to the show matt how are you doing
1: uh thanks for having me scott
0: uh, really appreciate you uh, taking time with us, and I really like your media criticism because I know you're the son of a NBC guy, right? Uh, kind of born yep. and bred in the major media, in a way, and and you have uh, such a great sort of perspective in your critique here, and uh, and and this is really fascinating article, the the Kremlinology one about the New York Times, of just essentially, uh, am I right? The theme is sort of the things that they reluctantly admit later are true that are so contrary to their narrative here, and it's just, what, 10 or 20 or 50 in a row?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the basic idea is that um, once upon a time, that look, the Times has always been really good at what it does, right? Like, you, you have to understand what the institution is for, It's huge. It's got the best and the brightest people working there. Um, When it wants to uh, report the news, it does a really good job of it. Uh, But what's happened to the paper, and I think a lot of the rest of the news landscape, especially in the Trump years, is that coverage has become increasingly politicized. And a lot of the both journalists and editors are making calculations about what they do and do not want to report on. Based on what they think the political outcomes will be, so at the times they are often not touching stories for years on end, and and then they'll suddenly come out with a with a feature, which performs the same function that I saw in the Soviet Union as a student, and um, you know in the in the in the post-Soviet era, a little bit, which is it it's the official organ that tells you when you're allowed to talk about something, which in this case is Joe Biden's cognition and health problems. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so this was an issue early on in the Democratic primaries where it was his opponents and major media people were pointing out that, boy, he's pretty far over the hill here. And then that became verboten until just now. huh? So what, two and a half years?
1: Yeah, it's funny because... Uh, I I, I covered Biden's campaign um, not a lot, a little bit. I covered him more in 2008, uh, but I I did spend a little bit of time on the trail with him. I did a piece for Rolling Stone about it, talked to some of the journalists. Everybody knew that this was an issue um, because if you had followed him in 2008, um, whatever you think of Joe Biden, he, he was pretty quick on the trail, I would say. Uh, he has some issues as a public speaker that are, I think, related both to his personality and, um, to his history as a a person who had a stutter, as everybody knows, he had a very serious one as as a kid, but he was always, he was always in, in control. Um, you know, I would say very lucid, uh, in his thinking, uh, and never kind of lost, about where he was or what he was talking about or what, um, you know, geographically where the event was. And he had pretty good, pretty decent control of his emotions. Uh, And that was not the case in 2020. Everybody noticed it, but almost nobody reported on it now. And now suddenly we're reporting on it, which is um, a very curious phenomenon. It makes you wonder why that would be. Yeah.
0: And it's pretty obvious. Both things are obvious, right? For anyone who's paid attention to, you know, current events over the last fifty years or any time during the last fifty years, you're familiar with Joe Biden. He's one of the most famous men in DC, not a president, but one of the most prominent senators all this time, right? He started in the Senate, went straight to the Senate back in elected in 72, took office in 73, right? And um, so everybody knows Joe Biden and anyone and everyone in their living room watching TV can tell the difference between how he used to be and now he has more hair now and <laughs> makes less sense
1: yeah it's absolutely true that that's a that's a funny little subplot to the whole thing that nobody wants to talk about the the the, the hair plugs phenomenon but um but yeah absolutely we 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 all know he's a very familiar character to generations of Americans, right? Because remember, he was a big story in 1990
0: 1988,
1: too. Yeah. Uh, he was a big story during the Clarence Thomas hearings. Um, so he's he's been front and center uh, in American news media hey, for 20 years you know, ago, 30 years.
0: Yeah, 20 years yeah. ago. In fact, this week or coming up, maybe next week will be the uh, the an- the 20 year anniversary of his bogus Senate foreign relations committee hearings on Iraq war II and why we got to do it and why <laughs> no dissenters are allowed to testify at all
1: my god if that was 20 years ago think about how long before that he was he was a big uh uh celebrity it, it, it's amazing right he's a, he's a very everybody knows what he was like and the difference in 2020 was pronounced
0: and you know you mentioned the stutter there and it's important as you mentioned in the article that this has been deployed as spin as sort of a shield that hey stop picking on biden for his stutter you when that's not what we were talking about his stutter there was other things at issue like him declaring war and then saying oh no i didn't really mean that though (laughs) you know
1: right and and this 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 was uh, as i mentioned in the piece this was um a particular issue for me at rolling stone um because my my editor at the time um my online editor john hendrickson who is somebody who i really like and really respect um but he, he is also somebody who had a speech impediment and later wrote a piece for the atlantic um essentially saying that you, you have, we have to remember that Biden's problems are not due to cognition, but due to his speech impediment. And I, you know, he and I went back and forth about this. And I, I kept trying to insist that, look, I have, I've seen this politician before. This isn't this isn't a speech issue. This, it, And fully under, admitting and under and understanding to the extent that I can, that the speech issue can complicate these other issues. But Joe Biden, like, forgot what state he was in. And the, the the most alarming thing, though, to me was his inability to control himself in um, exchanges with people in crowds, which is was a was a huge difference. He's he was always pretty charming, you know, going around the rope line in 2008. Uh, but you know, I, I interviewed people he was poking and yelling at and challenging to push-up contests and all this other crazy stuff like he, he was off the chain in in 2019 2020
0: yeah um and uh now so talk a bit about yeah the stuff where he's like picking fights with people in the crowd and this kind of thing oh i, I wanted to say real quick about that uh, just the spacing out I, i space out in fact i joke sometimes that i think i got what biden's got because i forgot what we were talking about what were we talking about again and i know <laughs> it's a, this is a somewhat self-inflicted wound here but point is that that happens to everybody, and everybody knows when it's happening to buy that. Oh, he's spaced out, but it's just with him. It's virtually every sentence he can't help but space out all the time. He doesn't know where the hell he is, as you just said. You you forget which state you're in. Yeah, that's going a little far.
1: You know? Yeah, yeah, and and also don't forget politicians are among other things, they're trained performers. Like some of them are better than others, you know, and that's one of the things that campaign reporters are measuring. like if if you go out there and you watch Marco Rubio on the stump, whatever you think about Marco Rubio, he's he's good at this job, right? like he he is a good political performer. Some of them aren't so good, right? Like they, you know, they, they're not great speakers. They don't know how to emote, they don't know how to read a crowd. Yeah. But all of them know how to recover. Right. Because the the job is about sitting on the razor's edge where your career can be over in a second if you say the wrong thing. So, you know, a politician who can't recall what state he or she is in or who says something totally inappropriate is whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, they're going to be trained to find some kind of safe ground within seconds because that's how they operate but this candidate was not able to do that. And that is significant.
0: Yeah, for real. And, and like poking that guy in the chest and going, I'm going to take your AR 14 away, pal, or whatever it was that he got wrong while he's fighting with that guy.
1: Yeah. Uh, Oh, there were, well, there were a couple of uh, people who got poked in the sternum. I don't even remember how many I I, I interviewed. uh, I think two of them in Iowa. So there, there, there were a bunch of those folks. Uh, he, he had a lot of confrontations with people that were, like, deeply uncomfortable, including involving people who were very uh, kindly disposed to him, like, who, who liked him. Um, and that and, and these scenes turned wrong. So uh, it was definitely an issue, but the, the re- reporters were all saying things like, well, we, we got to kind of soft pedal this because we don't want it to become ammunition for Trump, um, which I thought was crazy, you know, uh, and – but that was what what people were doing.
0: Right. Now, then your article goes on here, too, speaking of the Times belatedly admitting the obvious. Uh, oh, yeah, by the way, you know, it's not settled on whether we should be transitioning little children to the other sex. Or, yeah, the war in Ukraine might not be going as well as we sort of led you to believe. Or, you know, all these other things. That, oh, Hunter Biden's laptop wasn't really Russian disinformation and has all this incriminating stuff on it. They do eventually admit it. It's like the Georgia War of 2008. Remember that one the end of November 08. They go, oh, yeah, okay, Georgia started it.
1: Right, yeah, exactly. And, again, the the Times here is is fulfilling the exact same function that Pravda and Nidvestia used to fulfill, right? So if you couldn't talk about certain things before 1957 when Khrushchev made his secret speech... After that, the newspapers told you that, that you, you could start to talk about certain excesses, right, that, that happened during the Stalin years. Um, and that was what those newspapers were for. They, they, they sucked at everything else. They, they were completely useless at reporting the news. I, I remember uh, when I went, first went to Russia, uh, a friend of mine saying that the, the classic headline in a Soviet newspaper was, air catastrophe, no victims. Um, was, so you, you didn't, you never got any real information from the newspapers, but what you did get was very, very good information about what you could and could not talk about. And I don't think that's very useful news, but that's what the times has become good at. Yeah. Um,
0: now here was a fake story that they pushed was this proper, not scam or anybody who had any post. perspective whatsoever to, uh, you know, America-Russia relations or Russia Gate or any of that got smeared as propagandists. And I know that was the Post, but it's not like the Times debunked it or anything. That's true, right? But mm-hmm. I got breaking news for you here that um, there's a new uh, Ukrainian government blacklist uh, that includes Doug Bandow, Ray McGovern, Doug McGregor, Paul Pilar, Jeffrey Sachs, Tulsi Gabbard, Rand Paul, Glenn Greenwald, and John Mearsheimer. Uh, but you and I aren't on it, which leaves me jealous. And it's probably just a testament to your, you know, thorough explanations of your nuanced positions, but they're just ignoring me, which
1: makes me mad. You'll get there.
0: Yeah. So I guess that means there's a travel ban on all these people or the Ukrainian government's going to put sanctions on their bank accounts or something.
1: Yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, I think the the really interesting thing is that... um, this whole idea of we have to put a delay on any bad news that comes out of Ukraine. Um, the, the, the Times is kind of belatedly reporting certain issues or saying not all the experts are are convinced that, um, you know, this isn't going to turn into a quagmire for us politically or, uh, yeah, I mean, look, in the first days of the war, and this has become a, the kind of the typical arc of an American news story, you, uh, in, in the first blush of these gigantic sort of blowout stories where all the all the media corporate media organizations pile on, the first wave is always total agreement and complete suppression of any uh, you know dissenting points of view. And then three, four weeks later, sometimes they'll allow. You know, kind of you know, by the by a side door, a discussion about the things that people were saying underground in the in the first in the first brush uh, of the uh of the coverage. It's just no way to cover things. Like I think you you, you got to allow people to talk about the negatives and and to admit adverse facts. Like with with the Ukraine story, I just don't understand the utility in denying. Things about, say, the Azov Battalion. Like, where's that going to get you as a news organization to deny that it exists, that it has far right ties, uh, that it's a neo-Nazi organization historically? Like, people know that, right? And it's going to come out eventually. So all it's going to do is damage your credibility. I just don't understand why they've gone down this path.
0: Yeah, well, you've got to control the narrative, right? I mean, you you uh, in your article talk a lot about the censorship of people off of social media including mm-hmm. people who, you know, couldn't possibly be credibly accused of violating any terms of service other than it's just, you know, obviously, as uh, uh, old uh, McLeod, what's his first name, Alan McLeod, uh, demonstrated uh, recently over at Facebook and Twitter, it's all a bunch of FBI and CIA agents running the damn things now. And if they don't like your take on Ukraine, they might just unperson you right off of the Internet here, you know, as though you're whoever. Someone's so racist that it's okay, I guess, right, is the old standard.
1: I think that's what's so interesting about the Ukraine story, um, as opposed to all the previous waves of censorship, which had uh, much more, I mean, I I, I was against the censorship in any case, um, but they, they at least had some kind of argument for it in the past, right? So during the pandemic, you could argue, well, we don't want people to, have access to health misinformation, which could cause them to hurt themselves, right? Or we're against hate speech or incitement to violence, right? The, the, there are all these justifications that at least have, some, you know, a patina of intellectual justification over them. With the Ukraine story, when you're removing, you know, you're, you're dinging people like Jackson Hinkle, you know, first of all, why bother, right? Like, you know, you, you, why go after relatively people who are relatively on the fringes anyway? Um, but they're doing that. And the justification for it, there, there isn't one except, except that we think you're wrong about the war, right? Which is, which is just flat out censorship. You know, that's not a health issue. That's not a hate speech issue. That's not a, that's not a, an incitement issue. So they've they've steadily expanded the field of what what they can censor, and that should be nerve-wracking for people.
0: Yeah, it is. It's completely crazy. Um, And uh, it it happens to—you see people all the time just disappeared. You know, they make an example, as you wrote when it first happened. They made an example out of Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos and a couple of those people, and then they got away with it. And then it was on, right? Google de-ranking everybody and, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook shadow banning people and outright banning people over just completely bogus and fractious. In fact, um, Kyle Anzalone, the news editor at the Libertarian Institute and opinion editor at antiwar.com, they just completely deleted his Facebook. No appeal and no strikes against him. No even claim that he did anything wrong. Nothing official. Just you're you violated our terms of service. You're gone. Well, what was he doing? He's just posting antiwar.com dot articles about the war in Ukraine. That's all it is. Right,
1: right, right. Yeah, exactly. And 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 they don't like, they don't like what the message is there, right? So that's that's uh, that's not a very that's not a very compelling reason to be censoring. And you know, um,
0: was there a you, time where that would have just absolutely been an outrage, or just everybody thought it would, and so they didn't try it, and now they tried it, and they're like, oh, okay, that's pretty easy.
1: I feel like it would have been an outrage as rec- as recently as the Bush years. Uh, I, I remember, I seem to remember, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm confused now. I mean, the last few years have been so weird. I, I don't even trust my own memories anymore, but I seem to remember the entire like left liberal world freaking out over the Dixie chicks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would think overt censorship would have been a big deal once, but... Uh, there's a you know there's a couple of things that are going on that are that are really chilling. You you just mentioned one that I think is, um, by the way, it's it's apropos to this whole New York Times issue because the whole idea of deranking people on Google. First of all, that's the biggest and most effective form of censorship there is on the web. If you if you're looking for a specific uh, thing on Google, it's almost impossible to find it if they don't want you to find it. Like. For instance, QAnon just started uh, delivering messages again. Now, even if you just have morbid curiosity about it and you want to find it, good luck finding it um, now. Like None of the organizations that reported on it linked to it. Um, so it's, it's somewhere buried down in, in, in Google's system. Now, how do we know about this? Well, one of the reasons we know about this is because the World Socialist website, of all people, um, did this study about traffic to various sites uh, after Google changed, made a major change to its algorithm. And uh, who else but the New York Times uh, picked that story up about six months later, which was, I think, an inadvertent way of confirming the reality of it Um, and kind of let people know that, yeah, we're doing this. You know, like Google, Google is driving down certain sites and and pushing up other sites and when i when i talked to google the example they gave me is that if you search for baseball you might have gotten your local little league before and now you're going to get mlb.com so it, it, it's it's really a kind of size and influence based kind of, uh, based uh, form of censorship mm-hmm. uh, but it's significant you know and, yeah. and and most people don't know about it
0: sorry hang on just one second Hey, guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show. Thanks. Hey, y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great top lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. LibertasBella from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can, but I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War? Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945, through 61 and as he explains on the back here all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the american war there in say 1964 through 1974 but how do we get there why is this all harry truman's fault find out in why the vietnam war by the great mike swanson available now well now and where you talk about the narrative building here you quote chomsky about and I guess I've been uh, quoting and paraphrasing him a little bit too here about how they just built in. It's the unprovoked invasion. Unprovoked. You have to say that. It's like white separatist Randy Weaver. You have to say white separatist first. You can't say widower Randy Weaver or anything like that. Right. You know. Um, it, uh, so here it's the unprovoked invasion, and for only one obvious reason, which is that they provoked it, and they're liars. And so you have to say it that way, and and then, but they enforce that, right? And then, so essentially, um, and I don't watch TV anymore. Ever since Hillary Clinton started running for president again, I just turned that damn thing off. I just can't. <laughs> but uh, I take it that on TV, nobody like I guess I saw a little bit of Shimer on the News Hour one time. But essentially, the point of view that history did not begin on February the twenty second when it comes to Russia Ukraine um, you know, history here, uh, is that's the rule of the day on every channel, right?
1: Yeah. And again, this is straight out of George Orwell in 1984, right? Or it's, it's the memory hole technique where suddenly we've decided that, um, a discussion that was being had out in public and it is, it is out there. You, can, If you know where to look, you can find it. Um, and even the current head of the CIA was warning uh, at one time that, uh, you know, trying to expand NATO into Ukraine might provoke an armed response. Now, that's not for anybody listening. That's not me saying I in any way endorse what Russia did. I'm just saying that there was a discussion between very prominent members of the American foreign policy establishment including people like George Kennan, William Cohen, right, the former defense secretary, uh, all these people were saying essentially the same thing that Mearsheimer was saying which is you know, if we, do, if, we if we try to go in there r- Russia's going to take that as a as a provocation and, and they're not going to take it lying down and that's going to res- that's going to lead to something that's going to be a big mess. Now but you can't find that anymore. You all you can really find is what you talked about—that capsule description, the unprovoked eva- invasion, which uh, I'm always highly suspicious of those like Surgeon General type war- warnings that are mandatorily stuck into uh, news Man. coverage. Yeah, so that's an that's another example of it.
0: And it can still be an aggressive war, and be provoked too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a question of degrees about how bad a provocation's got to be before you're really defending yourself. I mean, I think we can both agree there's been low-level fighting, as they call it, in the Donbass since 2014. I mean, well, since 15, it was worse in 14. But uh, whether that amounts to enough of a provocation to justify Russia coming over the border, that's an entirely different question than whether that state of affairs existed and whether America would or would not negotiate over NATO involvement or missiles in Poland or whatever it is, you know what I mean?
1: Or missiles in Ukraine or, or CIA advisors in Ukraine. Right? I mean, you know, again, it's taboo to talk about this, but how would we feel if Russians suddenly parked in the Dominican Republic or Mexico or someplace like that? Like, you know... We, we wouldn't be happy about it. We've been not happy about it in previous incarnations, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that. Now, is this as serious as that? I don't know. Um, but it's a factor. Uh, yeah, pretty close. And, and also, there's – look, I, I lived in Russia for a long time. The, the The history of that region is extremely complicated. It's it's bizarre. Um You have to remember that uh, Ukraine was essentially given its independence sort of on a lark. Well, it was turned into an independent republic kind of on a lark by a Ukrainian born general secretary of the Soviet Union. Uh, So that was a historical quirk to begin with. Uh, The natural dividing lines of the country are far different from what they look like on the map. Um, You know, the, the Crimea historically it was a, was a, like a Russian resort area, you know, um, you know, back in the days of che- Chekhov and Tolstoy, the idea of calling that a, a part of Ukraine would have been really strange to some people. But look, le- leaving all that aside it, the, the, the salient point is that you just can't talk about this stuff. Um, you just can't say it's complicated. Uh, and that, that is not good for news. I don't think.
0: Yeah. Well, and I'm sorry to bring this up because I happen to be a participant in it, but I went up against Kathy Young, who writes for Bill Crystal and has a reputation as being a stalwart advocate of the interventionist take on this. And I completely destroyed her in a debate <laughs> the same way I did her boss, Bill Kristol, uh, on other Great. questions. Uh, I don't know if we, I don't think we talked about Russia, me and Bill, but uh, anyway, so when it comes down to it, there's the reason for your censorship right there overall is because their case can't withstand scrutiny, as we're talking about. They have to pretend that there's no prehistory here, but if anybody knows the prehistory, they know that it's full of these warnings. More than a generation in a row of American, very legitimate, so-called wise men warning that this could happen. Well, what are you going to do? Discredit every last one of them? It makes no sense, you know? You can't. No, so you just no, have I to know. ignore
1: it. Yeah, and, and, and the, the interventionist, takeover and and dismissal of, you know, what we used to call like the real politic or containment concept, um, which was, uh, you know, standard policy as recently as Barack Obama, um, in 2014 Remember his, you know, him basically declining to do anything about the, the Crimean occupation, because he just told the Atlantic magazine flat out, like, uh that area of the world's always going to matter more to Russia than us and so uh it's just not worth it for us to to go in there now i would have gone further than that and said the the whole issue of you know <laughs> Which which part of the world that belong you know belongs to Russia and belongs to Ukraine and w- you know which populations are where and whether they have the right to self determination whether the plebiscites in those areas were legitimate or not, um, you know I think you have to get into all of that, uh, but you can't you know and and so the 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 point of view that they want to make the prevailing point of view is this Bill Crystal messianic. Uh, democracy promotion idea, which is, you know, really, it's the neoconservative project, uh, you know, with regime change in Russia at the end of the idea. I mean, how I don't know how crazy you have to be to think that that's that's a realistic idea, but I think these people really do think that it's a realistic idea.
0: Yeah. Well, and sometimes they say that, right? You know, at least off the top of my head, I know there was that Niall Ferguson article in Bloomberg where he said, you know, unnamed sources told me, they want to see russia weaken so badly to the point that the regime collapses that's what they're going for here and and blinken and, and uh and austin both have come right up to the edge of that but both saying that the purpose of our involvement in the war is to weaken russia
1: uh, and bleed not... bleed putin that's another phrase that i've seen
0: <laughs> yeah there you go so and just think i know you're an expert on this of the american absolute moral panic freak out over the absolute hoax that the Democrats and the FBI and the CIA put over on the American people that the Russians had intervened and overthrown Hillary Clinton and installed Donald Trump in power.
1: Right. And again, that was another one of those mandatory Surge- surgeon general warning moments. Right. Remember where, where every newspaper had to include the phrase uh, Russia's interference activities uh, in, in every coverage of every Trump-Russia story that had to be in there somewhere. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think that's where a lot of this goes back to. It, it's this idea that Vladimir Putin isn't just a, um, you know, an autocratic leader of a state that we've had difficult relations with dating back, um, you know, especially to the late 90s. Uh but he, but he's part of this burgeoning axis of autocracy that not only includes him and people like Victor Orban, but also the quote unquote, populist movements in Western countries like, you know, Le Pen in France and Trump in America. And so it's this kind of you know, Bush style unified field theory of the evil killers all around us. Like, this is crazy. I mean, this this is a, this is a, um, uh, you know, a a kind of one size fits all theory of everything, uh, version of doing foreign policy that I think even somebody like Henry Kissinger would have considered crazy. Um, but they want to make it the norm.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, now it's fashionable, I guess, to attack Kissinger because this is the one time he's preaching caution and they're saying, oh, yeah, did I ever tell you about that time he killed all those Laotians? Yeah, right. we already knew about that. You know, here he is finally being good on something and they are ready to throw him overboard.
1: Right, because now now containment is a bad policy, right? Now, like when Henry Kissinger before was saying, well, we have to commit troops to make sure that communism doesn't spread in, in uh, South Vietnam, which was a lie. Like really what the United States was doing was – occupying uh south vietnam to prevent um you know an internal uh political dispute not an invasion really from the north but whatever that doesn't matter like once upon a time kissinger was the person who was advocating for for the use of force primarily to restrain the expansion of uh communism now what what this new you know crystal type Thinker is saying is that's not good enough. We have to go. We have to go out and actively stamp out um, autocracy everywhere and spread democracy everywhere. Which think of when you think about it, it's kind of like a world domination plan, which is which is goes leagues beyond even even what Kissinger was for.
0: Yeah, and of course they're the world's greatest hypocrites. I mean, we're 20 years into this century, and. We're seven, eight wars deep already, the United States of America, and our president just got back from laying the groundwork or further groundwork uh, that his predecessor started on creating a new Middle Eastern NATO, you know, with those democracies, Israel and Kuwait and Jordan and Saudi and Qatar and Bahrain and is Oman going to be included? These people, Egypt... Yeah, no, it's us and our democratic allies against the forces of darkness. Matt, get on board for this thing, pal.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought it was it was great when he talked about how he he was going to be the first president to go into a region where into the into the Middle East where there were no American wars going on. I'm like, you know, I guess he's he's forgetting a few countries. But, you know, <laughs> that gets us back to the original topic of uh, Biden not really being on top of things very, very much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, this, this whole episode has been really strange.
0: I mean, it does raise the question. I'm sorry. Does the president of the United States not know that we have troops in Iraq and Syria and at war actively, you know, on missions regularly in Somalia
1: still Djibouti, supporting? Niger? like, yeah. Yeah, who Did he
0: forget or does he really not know? I mean, those are two kind of different things. Maybe nobody told him. Maybe it's been years since anybody told me he had a war in Somalia. He has no idea.
1: <laughs> yeah. And he supposedly
0: ordered troops back in there when Trump ordered them out to Djibouti.
1: Yeah, it's it's impossible to know what's going on. I'd be I'd be fascinated to hear what the discussions are in the White House about how much the president really needs to know about his own administration, but um, I, I would assume that he's got an inner circle that is representing Biden's interest, uh, it would be, it would be kind of a shock to me if they weren't at least looped into most things, but you know, who knows? Like the, the fact that he's being dumped on so, uh, vociferously in the press right now is a, is a pretty major indication that the democratic party has, um, has made a decision about him.
0: Yeah. Well, I just think it's hilarious. I have to say, you can comment on this if you want, but I got to throw this in here. I think it's so funny that they're talking about maybe bringing Hillary back, talking about Gavin Newsom, talking about Ugh. anyone in the world but they're sitting vice president, the first female vice president of the United States of America, first woman of color to be in that level of a high—and nobody's even pretending to entertain the possibility of running her in Biden's place. They're already looking for a white guy from California if they can. The guy who presided over hundreds of thousands of people fleeing the state while he was in charge of it. But anyway— Still well, better than her, they figure, apparently.
1: Well, uh, that I mean, I'm, I'm going to guess that that some of that is because they've run the numbers. yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I covered Kamala a little bit in in 2019. Um, if you remember, there were two different waves of media pressure trying to make the argument for her as the front runner and. Mm-hmm. In both of those instances, she went backwards in the polls. When that happens, which is an indication that as the public is more exposed to a politician, they they register a greater dislike. Um, she she's a she's just a bad candidate. Like I, I I don't know whether what to think of her as a politician because I didn't you know I never spent a lot of time looking at her record as um, you know the California California Attorney General, but. Um, But, you know, as a candidate, she was she was incredibly maladroit on the on the stump. She 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 just she has this uh, inability to connect with people, which is like fatal to a presidential candidate.
0: Yeah. I'm amazed that she was the saving grace for Biden. I know Biden is old and crotchy, but don't worry, he's going to have Kamala Harris with him. And that was (laughs) and and she was the best one that they could do out of the litter that they were picking from at the time, which is another crisis.
1: But don't their- forget, B- Biden lost ground relatively with Black voters in that election. So some of the logic they they clearly had in mind with um, with nominating Kamala uh, was was clearly faulty, because what the 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 major the major thing that put him over the edge was that they had this massive gain with uh, with white and especially male voters. Um, vis-a-vis 2006. In other words, Biden did six points better um, with that group than Hillary did. But he did worse with everybody else, including black voters, including female voters. So, um, you know, who knows? Yeah.
0: All right. Now, can I keep you another minute and ask you about this great American military rebrand here? Because this is a lot of fun, sort of. It's a horror show. But, you know, I did an interview the other day. The guy interviewed me and he said, hi, I'm only uh, in my early 20s. And so I was just wondering, you know, I read uh, your Afghan book. So can you explain Afghanistan since, like, 79 for me, please? Because me and my people, we don't know nothing about it. So even though, remember a minute ago, we were both kind of shocked that it was 20 years ago that they were lying us into war with Iraq, that that's how long it's been. That means there's people who don't really remember that era at all who are grown adults now listening to this. And so here your story is about how liberals love war now, but you start out about how they used to didn't, and really kind of the remnants of the anti-war spirit left over from Vietnam that had been reinvigorated a little bit with Iraq War One really came back with Iraq War II for a minute there, uh, especially before it. But then with the Cindy Sheehan movement and all of that stuff, and hey, if you want to righteously oppose George W. Bush, I got some policies for you to focus on, you know? But then this story is, you start with that, but then you talk about how those days are over, but... Can you can you start a little bit with the Bush years and all the you talk about the Cunningham scandal and all that here?
1: Yeah, so uh, the, part of this is my perspective. I during that entire period of the Iraq War um, and the Bush presidency, I had to cover a lot of this stuff um, from the anti-war marches. I mean, I I was part of the the historically enormous uh marches in February of 2003 I guess it was right um mm-hmm. against against the war uh I covered those um then l- a little bit later the earmark scandal, which was significantly about uh, members of Congress doing dirty deals on behalf of defense contractors I spent a lot of time on that story so I remember the, the outrage about that, and I think the takeaway is that the, the quote-unquote liberal left at the time, and remember I was writing for Rolling Stone, so this was a, a almost pure blue audience. Um, they were incredibly uh, fixated on the issue of the war on terror on military corruption, on the rising military budget, on Guantanamo Bay, on torture, on rendition. If you remember in pop culture, there were all these movies about the excesses of of the war on terror. Remember, remember rendition was a movie. Well, just uh, even on the
0: Rolling Stone. I mean, they're publishing Bob Dreyfus and James Bamford and just, oh, I'm sorry. I had three more on the tip of my tongue a second ago, but I got what Biden's got. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, you're, yeah, you're exactly right. Like the, the Bush was like the archetypal, uh, warmongering Republican villain at the time. And we all thought he was crazy because he was the, the arguments that he was making.
0: Michael Hastings, I meant to say. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Michael Hastings. Yeah. The the, late, the late dear departed Michael Hastings. Um, yeah, all that stuff was incredibly resonant at one point with this audience. And then in a, Really, in a heartbeat, Obama gets elected, and the, there are cuts to the defense budget in 2011. And right away, there begins this rebrand of the whole military project. And I, and one of the people I interviewed is this uh, think tanker named Christopher Mott, who talks about it starting with the Coney 2012 um, uh, campaign. Most people don't know that the United States began secretly sending troops to Central Africa or building up troops at that time uh, to fight the, uh, I forget what it was, the Lord's Revolutionary, uh, the Lord's something army, I forget what it was called, uh, Lord's Resistance Army. Um, but then, you know, we had a series of interventions that were more and more framed as humanitarian uh interventions that were designed to prevent social justice outrages. So in Libya, we went, when we went into Libya, if you remember, like the big story that was animating the left was that Gaddafi was handing out, uh, Viagra to, uh, his troops so that they could commit, uh, mass rapes. Um, that story turned out to be not, not so true. Um, but the, then we had the re- responsibility to protect doctrine, which was the the UN's um, uh, basically its new idea about how to use force, that you, the use of force was indicated um, in order to prevent mass atrocity events, you know, whether it's ethnic cleansing or, um, you know, uh, y- and anything like that so you have to use multilateral force to go in to pre- to prevent that to prevent genocide whatever um and so they they essentially took the the Bushian project of let's use military force to uh rid the world of evil right which was his his way of phrasing it um but now we want to use it uh to to promote democracy and to prevent human rights out- outrages and social justice outrages, and it was very compelling, I think, for left-liberal audiences for some reason that I never really understood. Because I, I mean, I remember in those years covering Terror Tuesdays with Obama using drones and having the weekly meetings to decide who to who to assassinate. Like this seemed to me like an almost exact uh, continuation of the Bush war on terror stuff and nobody seemed interested in it anymore.
0: Yeah. It's just partisanship makes people crazy. And it, right? and, it and it, inspires faith where it, you know, it's not warranted at all. And I remember, you know, for example, um, the first interview I had with, uh, Juan Cole, who had been, he had actually been a hawk on Iraq, but then quickly became a critic about how the war was being carried out conveniently and was really smart and, and was really right about a lot of what was going on in Iraq War II. But when it came to Libya in 2011, he's like, oh, yeah, got to stop Gaddafi, of course, let's do it. And I go, yeah, but but this is the same military that just did the other thing that we just <laughs> finished talking about, this whole... You can't just act like this is going to be a snap of a fingers. This is going to be war, you know, explosions and people dying and and unforeseen consequences Maybe a nation-building mission? Are we going to have to build up a new military to try to rule Libya now? Which, thankfully, they didn't go that route, but they still got a catastrophe out of the thing. But I just couldn't even believe that to him. It was like, yes, of course. And he's not just some fool consuming this media, right? He's an expert. But to him, it was like, well, Bush is gone. Cheney's gone. So all is forgiven. Blank slate. The military can now be the object of, you know, to achieve all of our desires here, there, and wherever.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, and and the as you mentioned, the thing with Libya that was amazing is they they didn't even bother to try to do the nation building project. They just let the whole thing turn into an, uh, a hellhole and uh, basically a um, a rudderless, borderless uh, sectarian nightmare. Um, they just, they, they, in other words, they just went straight to the last chapter of the Iraq debacle, uh, skipping. The delusional part in the middle, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was okay with them, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and now we're now we're in this place. You know, I was really struck a couple of weeks ago when the New York Times ran this piece about um, opposing Putin, and there was a passage in there about how his his vision was to replace the bad West with the good, which is like opposing him with a good West. Which would include in- include a raft of nationally oriented leaders like Orbán in Hungary, Le Pen in France, and even Trump in the United States. This is it's it's the axis of evil idea. It's the same exact idea that we all laughed at uh, 20 years ago, and now all of a sudden it makes sense. Uh, I, it's 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 just mind boggling to mm. me that this stuff goes down with people.
0: Meh. Sorry. Hang on, just one second. Hey, y'all. Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton hotter than the sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, scorpion peppers, Dr. Pepper, hydrogen isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code Scott to get a free bottle of hotter than the sun hot sauce. That's TNHotSauceCo.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash Ron Paul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton, and you'll save 25 bucks. and this show will get a little kickback, too. That's rickcasali.com slash Ron Paul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I, rickcasali.com slash Ron Paul. And there's free shipping, too. Well, you know what's funny about that, too, is that Fukuyama himself, in the end of history, said... That, yeah, you know, markets and democracy, but still, ethnic nationalism is very powerful. And if we don't do this liberal world order thing just so carefully, it might not last because people are going to react. And what do they do? They blew up everything. Started a bunch of wars, told a million lies, blew up the economy over and over again. I mean, yeah. some liberal world order. I wonder why the Chinese aren't embracing the American way right now, Matt.
1: Well, yeah, and and, and the, the the inability to recognize that one thing affects the other, you know, going out on, on the campaign trail with Donald Trump and seeing that there are there are all these vets in the crowd from the Middle Eastern wars, and Trump saw it too, and he started saying things about NATO, um, you know, that it was obsolete, that they owed us money, that maybe we would, wouldn't fulfill our obligations if they. Um, if you, if the Baltics got, got invaded, like these, these were like cheer lines all of a sudden. And why do you think that is right? Like the, the, this was just treated as, as pure unadulterated evil in the press. But the reality is like, you're not going to get that reaction if you don't have a whole bunch of really pissed off people who are coming back from the middle East, um, and, and not happy with why they were there or, or what the result of that was and, and to just, just not recognize that it's just so strange.
0: Yeah. And here from a regular person's point of view, the advent of the post terror war, not that it's all the way over yet, uh, American right. And the, their change, especially because of Ron Paul and then Donald Trump and to this kind of America first, we're tired of this intervention kind of attitude. Immediately. They're all smeared as isolationists. Right. Even though, These liberals are no good in a fight. How many of them have ever been over there and back, you know? And here you got G.I. Joe talking about, I don't think the next generation of guys should have to go through what I just went through for nothing the way I did. And then their smear is, oh, yeah, you're the kinds of people who allowed Hitler to take over the world, blah, 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 blah." slogans.
1: Right. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable because. I mean not not that long ago in 2002 and 2003 the, it was it was almost mandatory in left liberal circles to say things like the United States has no national interest in invading Iraq and taking over the country and they, of course they were exactly right in that right the, I mean Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 the the whole cover story never made any sense because if there's one kind of person that groups like al-qaeda hated more than they hated the united states it was these you know quote unquote um you know non-sectarian not a, uh, uh atheistic leaders like um like saddam hussein like they 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 thought of those people as worse than us. And the idea that those two groups would be in cahoots together was nuts, but it was, nobody blinked an eye at arguing that we had no interest in going in there. And now all of a sudden, when you have people arguing that about um, other places, they're traitors and and they're the people who would have let Hitler go into the Sudetenland. So yeah, it's crazy.
0: And meanwhile, just think about it. Nobody attacks Mexico or Brazil or the Central African Republic. Well, I don't know about their record, but I don't know whoever. Nobody attacks, um, you know, Pango Pango for being isolationist and not taking on the burdens of world order. Nobody ever explains why it has to be us. And there's also this completely baked-in fallacy. that She says, American power recedes either Russia or or China, or both together are going to take over the world and replace us as the world's dominant hegemonic power type thing when that's not really what's at issue at all. What's at issue is now a multipolar world instead of a unipolar world. Nobody thinks the capital of the planet's moving to Beijing. Just that, hey, they have more wealth and power than they used to. And so they're going to have to be treated in that context instead of the previous context where they didn't.
1: You yeah? know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And the idea that we have to maintain this uh, military and political uh, hegemony worldwide, first of all, that that train has left the station already. But second of all, uh, you know, it's just not realistic. And it's also there's, there's a big question as to whether the public, that's what they want. I mean, if you go back even all the way to the Clinton years, there was a debate over whether we should we should take advantage of the collapse of the Soviet Union by reinvesting in the United States, um, the so-called peace dividend. um, Or should we, you know, should we continue to be this global uh, power that has its fingers in everything? And, you know, obviously we know who won that fight, but I, I don't think it's a settled issue. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't think it's it's been proven that that was th- that we made the right decision by, you know, uh, by going that way. So, sure. yeah,
0: the uh, furthest thing from it, If from sitting in the chair, I'm sitting in here, man, I don't know. I can't think of how they could have blown it worse than what they've done. Well, no, that's not true. But still, it's been really bad. It still is. Um, I'd like to hear about, uh, you know, the psychologizing of the American empire here it reminds me of Garrett Garrett, where in an empire, foreign policy just dominates everything. Where what's the problem with the cowardice of the cops in Uvalde? It's that the Ayatollah might think that we're getting weak and take advantage of us or something like that, huh? Him and oh, I together.
1: I know. I know. Yeah. The, you saw news stories like that. Like Uvalde isn't just a domestic problem. Like we have to. We have to send some kind of signal to Putin or yeah or the <laughs> this or bomb
0: Grenada dude that'll show them.
1: Yeah like I mean who <laughs> thinks like that I mean I the, are these people able to drive cars like I, I, I just I'm I'm continually amazed at the level of delusion and just weirdness in the thinking of um you know the foreign policy establishment mm-hmm. and the press and um eh, very strange
0: Well, I mean, they're reacting against the crisis of confidence that they feel it themselves. That, geez, our state really sucks at doing its most basic function, being our security force. They do nothing but pick fights. And even when some sicko is masquerading babies, they stand around with their hands in their pockets. you kidding me? What are they good for at all? And then, but then that does raise the question, if you are a foreign interventionist, that, oh, no. All our foreign adversaries will also be having that same kind of not so much crisis from their point of view, but that loss of confidence in American power and that loss of fear in the threat, you know, um, they can't help it because that's they feel the same way as all of us. Why do we even tolerate these people taking our money and acting in our name when this is how they
1: act? Yeah. And and this was the the big argument that people like Tom Friedman made in the early Bush years that. You know, we have to show some other other countries that not only are we powerful, but we're a little bit nuts too. Like we're not, mm-hmm. we're 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 willing to go in and and get our hands dirty and uh, and make you remember uh, how nasty we can really be, right? And that that was part of the underlying logic of the Iraq War is like we have to we have to kick a little ass uh, to. Um, you know, to, to put the fear of God into some other countries. And of course, that's exactly the opposite of that happened in Iraq. You know, Iraq revealed us to be militarily not weak, certainly, but but run by people who were not terribly bright. You know, the the, the, the idea that we would go into Iraq. That Americans could go into a, a a country that has, you know, natural uh, Shia Su- uh, and Sunni divisions and put that all together while being commanded by a president who didn't even know about the different sects within Islam. It, it, you know, we all see how it turned out. It turned into like the biggest mess in, in modern geopolitical history. Um, that makes us look not just weak, but you know, totally incompetent and stupid, and um, I think it emboldens other countries, right? And uh, it, it, they've shown no inclination to recognize the damage that that's done. Yeah, oh, and not and by the way, and not just of the to the military, but to the to the news media also. Right. I, I think that was a ma- that was a major major consequence of of the Iraq War is the loss of belief in the ability of of the news to news media to report things accurately and and to face up to their mistakes. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, look there's always been kind of marginal beliefs too but it seems like they seem to really be growing in the sense where people don't know where the propaganda begins and ends. Does it include the weather cycle or is it just the global warming hoax or is it you know what i mean is it to, right. the same people who said that Uh, we had to do Iraq and that it was great the whole time and we can't leave now because we're about to win and it's even getting better, are the same people who say that the Earth is round, (laughs) you know, I don't know, or that nuclear weapons exist. This is one that people have been tweeting at me recently, that everybody knows that nuclear weapons are a hoax. It's just to, you know, get you onto fossil fuels and afraid of nuclear power. All All these explosions that you've seen footage of are faked, they think. And it, and it's just you. I mean, you can blame them, but you also kind of can't blame them because they're lied to about everything all the time. And not everybody's good at figuring out where the line is, you know?
1: Right. And and even uh, I could forgive even very smart people for for not knowing what's what. Right. Like you th- you think about what happened in two thousand and three and beyond. Um, you know, one incident sticks out for me, which is the one where Dick Cheney went on Meet the Press and said. Uh, you know, the New York times just reported that there was a connection between, I, I forget what the, what the, I think it was the Muhammad Adda in Prague thing. Um, uh, and the, you know, what he was, he was doing basically it was, he was using the time because they had given the, the, that story to the times. Uh, so then he, then he goes on TV and cites the times. Now the. The issue with that is that why is the New York Times not coming out the day after and saying, yeah, actually, um, we got that story from, <laughs> from the same people, right? And and so if we, I think what people saw is that these news organizations, not only are they often taken in and easily fooled, but that they're kind of in on it too, mm-hmm. right? And that's... That's like a kind of a, that messes with your mind as a media consumer. And even as somebody who works in the business, like it makes you not know what to think about anything.
0: Yeah. Now, overall, obviously my major interest is in, you know, anti-imperialism and anti-war sentiment in the country here. And it's so important. I mean, this is on the top of my mind all the time about the degree to which the right and the left and to which degrees on the right and the left people are anti-war and to what effect and that kind of thing. And so I kind of look at it like, well, we did have the Powell Doctrine or Weinberger Doctrine was you need the American people united behind any war if you're going to start a war, you know. And then the W. Bush Doctrine was, well, we'll just settle for the right. And there were the Republicans after all. Uh, And then, you know, the problem has been, you know, uh, under, you know, it's true that Trump was a Republican in there for four years and that did kind of mix things up a little bit, but he wasn't really the dominant force in the society like Bush was at the time. You know what I mean? The, the whole media and even government establishment were against him the whole time all along. Mm-hmm. So it was still like the liberal project. It was the FBI and the CIA who were saving us from him, even though he was the democratically elected one, not them and that kind of thing. Um, but so um, you do kind of have, as you're talking about, this neutering of the left on their opposition to war, and then you do have, you know, these kind of provocations like these myths of of Viagra in Libya and the auto genocide in Syria and the different narratives that they push, um, the uh, historyless, unprovoked invasion in Ukraine that you can get people excited about on Twitter and whatever. But it seems to me, I think, more or less kind of, and I hope I'm not just stretching here, that... The remnants of that anti Vietnam War sentiment and the remnants of the Iraq War II sentiment there on the left. And after all, we are talking liberals don't join the army by and large, right? Like they don't they're not the ones with the upper body strength who do the heavy lifting when it comes to <laughs> fighting battles. And so um you know it's kinda you join, know they're it's, they're it's
1: OCS. But I'm know, sorry? If they join they're going to OCS. You know what I mean? They're not they're not in. they're not in the enlisted. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know
0: what OCS is. Sorry. Oh,
1: officer, officer training. Sorry. It's oh, like, gotcha. Whatever.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah, in other words, you know, they're in a kind of hollow place to really be much a Hawks. And I think their heart really isn't in it. Right. Like, don't you insult their Obama. And, you know, they'll try to look away when it's Biden. But I think they're really. It, and and frankly, like almost all, almost all of our best anti-war journalists are leftists and progressives and liberals there's no question about that it's just true um and there are a lot of great paleocons and and populist right-wingers and libertarians as well but you know look at the roster of the people i've been interviewing over the last 20 years and it's almost all leftists who are the ones who really do the work on this stuff and and that goes for the anti-war groups too almost all our left-wing groups who act even when they're small they're the ones who are still out there and still doing the work too so yeah but, they shouldn't but, be but, so short but i'm sorry go ahead
1: But but look at what happened to them. Like,
0: yeah, they do. It's true. But I guess what I'm I'm trying to build to the point, though, that like left wing hawks aren't very convincing and that when you have the right wing getting better and better all the time, obviously, Republican Party leadership is horrible still. But um, the the American rank and file right are getting better and better on this, certainly on the Middle East. I know they can be uh, whooped up about China and we're working on that, too, but. It just seems like if you don't have the American right to support your war, and yeah, you can send some drone robots or something maybe, but under, you know, what's left of the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine here, somebody who's, like, believable in the society has to be willing to sign up for this thing. In fact, that's one of my interviews later today is a guy who's just got out of the Army who's addressing why people are not joining the Army now, why numbers are so low is because there's just no reason for people to believe in it anymore, and you can't psych them out into believing in it after all of this. So I guess I'm a little bit hopeful just on the overall trend. Not that people are, like, hardcore opposed to the wars, but there's just no spirit behind them at all, really, I don't think, outside of D.C. and the Atlantic and whatever, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the only people who are gung-ho expansionists are the people who are never going to go and whose kids are never going to go. (laughs) So, so that's, that's, I think that's a long-term, that's a big problem for the American kind of expansionist project is, uh, if the right is becoming isolationist and as you point out, it's, it's not, you know, sort of woke liberals who are going to go join the army, right? Like, you know, in, in big numbers anyway, I mean, there's probably a few, but, um, yeah, I, if if that fighting force is is not going to be credibly led by somebody uh, who has the attention of of the of the people who are actually, you know, in the services, then yeah, I don't I don't see where this is going. Yeah,
0: well, I'm very proud of the fact that I just know that there are scores and scores, hundreds, probably maybe many more than that of anti-war veterans who listen to this show, and and who, uh, you know, I meet them all the time when I go around and none of them ever say to me, you don't know what you're talking about, dude. They all say, man, hell yeah. And thanks because yeah, we all feel like we've been betrayed by all these lies that you highlight there. So that's great. You know, that's how they feel about it. And, and the only point is we got to really highlight, uh, by the way, Mr. Journalist, man, have you ever heard of this really important phenomenon called the defend the guard legislation that's being pushed through the States? So there's, um, A guy named Pat McGeehan, who's in the state house, I believe it is, in West Virginia. And uh, he's the one who invented this. And what it is, is it's a law that says that the feds cannot have the National Guard troops unless they have an official for overseas combat, unless they have an official declaration of war from the Congress. In other words, never, because they'll never take responsibility of the Congress. Right. So. But now this is a whole phenomenon. And there's this great group called. Bring the troop bring our troops U. S. led by this guy Dan McKnight and, and a bunch of great guys. And they're all combat veterans of this century's terror wars. And they also have defend the guard. US. So that's bring our troops home.us and defend the guard. US. And they have got this introduced in 30 state houses so far, and PBS Newshour did a big special about it. and they send a two-star general around. To try to testify to the state legislatures why well, you better not do this we might take your money away and this kind of thing and they're all essentially you know technically on the right they're libertarians and kind of ron paul republicans and uh, you know anti-war uh, right-leaning guys and and they're working from the bottom up nullification and interposition And getting the states to stand in the way of the feds abusing the National Guard. And, of course, I know you know the history of just, you know, in our recent past here, where the National Guard in Louisiana was nowhere to be found during Katrina because they were over there patrolling and getting blown up playing the IED lottery in Iraq for no reason. And the same thing when there's wildfires in Oregon the guys are in Afghanistan or which wherever it was
1: I mean um, I was in I was embedded with the National Guard group from Oklahoma so yeah I mean I, I that, that I know all about that that's there and you go. they're they're not certainly not happy about it
0: right? absolutely so look this is a whole huge phenomenon and it's you know it's a statement more than a, a actually signed legislation yet but it, you know, it seems to really be gaining steam and it's a huge kind of symbol of the new sentiment on the right here that, you know, think Looking about even going now, back to 08 when Bush was still in the chair. Ron Paul got more donations and support from the military than all the other candidates combined.
1: Right. Well, what does that tell you? Right. I mean, and and I th- I think some of that bled over into Trump in 2016 yep. and um. You know, the fact that politicians aren't paying attention to that is is pretty damning.
0: Yeah. Well, they need to start. And and it's up to the anti-war movement to let them know that this is what we care about the most. So if you want to survive, you're going to have to get good on it. That's all the lever we have mostly. But absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, listen, you're such a great writer. I read everything you send me in my email box here. It's uh, Matt EB at Substack.com. TK News. And check out all his great books, too, including the latest is
1: Hate, Inc. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care.
0: The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.